in the resurrection scene, Jesus does not immediately reveal himself to Peter. He does not immediately reveal himself to John. He immediately reveals himself uh, to a girl named Mary, Mary Magdalene. And he immediately sends Mary on her way to go and tell the disciples. Between the lines of, of verse 18 and verse 19, Mary goes and tells the disciples everything that she has just seen. She goes and tells them, I have seen the Lord. And she tells him what Jesus said. And she tells them the story that, that she experienced at the tomb. Well, tonight, we're going to see the follow-up to that event. We're going to start in verse 19 of John chapter 20. We're told this, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both of his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. He then said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. It's an incredible scene. We've followed Jesus' disciples for a long time in the Gospel of John. And if we had anticipated their response to a resurrected Jesus, it probably would not have been what took place in this text. I mean, Jesus has told the disciples that he's going to die. He's told them that he would be raised. And yet we find skeptical disciples. Jesus has been resurrected. Mary has told the disciples. And yet they are wrestling and even doubting this event. The disciples are... uh, skeptical people. 
We're going to title this tonight, An Unexpected Visitor. An Unexpected Visitor. The disciples are convinced that Jesus is dead. And naturally so. They saw him die. They saw him buried. And dead people don't live again. But as they close the doors in fear of the Jews, they receive an unexpected guest. Jesus shows up. I feel like I'm generally a, uh, a fairly skeptical individual. I often, uh, I often don't believe things when I first hear them. I think one of my wife's least favorite responses of mine whenever I tell her a story is, I don't believe that. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of common. There's a lot of stories that I struggle to believe at face value. And it's because there's a lot of people that I don't trust in their storytelling. I trust my wife's storytelling ability. I just don't trust the people that told her the story. Because I know that people want their stories to be good. I'll know that they, that they want what they're telling people to be engaging. And, and my general outlook is that people tend to be exaggerators. People tend to exaggerate the truth when they're trying to tell a captivating story. And it makes sense. The story's more fun, it's more engaging when you stretch the details a little bit. If one of you were, were to ask someone else about me, you know Adam? And he said, yeah, I know Adam, he's, he's nice. And just left it at that. And then person A goes to someone else and he, so, he says, yeah, that, that guy knows Adam. He didn't have a whole lot of nice things to say about him though. Just one, just that he's nice. Then person B goes and finds person C and says, yeah, that, that one guy, he knows Adam, but nothing good to say about him. And then person C goes to person D and says, yeah, you know, I don't think he likes him very much. Person D goes to person E and says, dude, he hates that guy. <laughs> and person E goes to person F. G-H-I-J all the way down and eventually it's like me and this guy got in a fight and I killed him or, or something like people, people people exaggerate like this is the game of telephone right as, as things get passed along they become less and less reliable because people tend to exaggerate a little bit especially when the story starts with the word basically like he basically said to him this when people start summarizing things they exaggerate details and and I, I often probably wrongfully so suspect people of that what we're going to see the disciples do in this story is exactly that Mary, a trustworthy source, is going to come to the disciples, sent by Jesus himself, to tell them a very important message, but the disciples aren't going to believe her. They're going to be skeptical of her story. In fact, we're told in another gospel that their view of her story was that it was, that it was essentially a, a, a fable, a, a, a wives' tale is kind of the terminology that's used. That what Mary is coming, she, they, they look at her and they say, you're, you're just, you're imagining things. Which must have been just so frustrating to Mary, right? She has seen Jesus and, and she comes to the disciples and she says, I've seen him. He's alive. You don't need to be mourning. You, you don't need to be hiding. He's, he's risen. And they say, no. No way. I saw him buried. 
I saw him killed. And dead people don't rise. The disciples are a skeptical group. And so as we find them in this scene, they're actually terrified for their lives at this point. They're hiding from the Jews. They're hiding in this room. They've shut all the doors. Other Gospels tell us they've locked all the doors so that no one can get in, no one goes out. This is ultimate secrecy. And then out of nowhere, Jesus appears in their midst. They're standing in a room with locked doors and Jesus is there. He, he just appears. He just shows up. It's evening. Look, verse 19. It's evening, the first day of the week. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fears of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Can you imagine being the disciples? What would go through your mind at this moment? Let me tell you what goes through the disciples' mind. The disciples' initial thoughts are, it's a ghost. Well, we're literally told in other Gospels that the disciples see Jesus and they don't believe it's him. He's standing in their midst and they think that he's like a spirit. In fact, this gets carried out to the extent that Jesus takes a fish and eats it because in, in the way that they understood spirits and ghosts, like they didn't eat things. And so Jesus takes a fish and eats it to show them that he's human. We're not told that in this gospel. We just jump straight to the disciples' ultimate response. And it's in the disciples' response that we begin to see some structure to this text and how we're going to, to understand and wrap our minds around this tonight. If we're taking notes, our outline's going to be this. Three effects of Jesus' appearance before his disciples. Three effects of Jesus' appearance to his disciples. Last week, we saw three effects of Jesus' resurrection. We looked at the tomb scene this week. John is showing us three effects of his appearance specifically to his disciples, which didn't happen at the tomb. The first one is revealed in verse 19. It brings the doubters joy. Jesus' appearance to his disciples brings the doubters joy. The doubters in this passage are the disciples. Now, we have characterized Thomas at the end of this passage as doubting Thomas, the one who says, unless I see his hands, unless I see his feet, I will not believe. And so we call him doubting Thomas. But it's important to note that the disciples are all doing the exact same thing. Remember what has just happened. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to Mary. John, remember John and Peter, they raced to the tomb last week. John beats Peter to the tomb. And John, when they enter in, we're told, John believes. John believes. 
The indication, however, is that Peter doesn't, not yet. John and Peter leave the tomb. We're told elsewhere that Jesus specifically appears to Peter. Jesus appears to Peter individually sometime between the tomb and this event. So Mary has seen Jesus. John has seen the empty tomb and believed. Peter has seen and talked with Jesus. All of them have delivered their report to the disciples. All of them. This isn't something that they remain silent about. Mary was commanded, go and tell the disciples all that you've seen. Mary returns. John returns. Peter returns with the news of Jesus' resurrection. And yet all of the disciples are doubting. See, it's important to note that what's happening in this room is not rejoicing. In the beginning of this scene, it's not a party with a closed off room. It's fear and terror and mourning. John, Peter, and Mary are telling them this message, but the disciples are not rejoicing. They don't rejoice until they see Jesus with their own eyes. You see, in their actions, they're doing exactly what Thomas does at the end, which is saying, I won't believe until I see him with my own eyes. But when they see Jesus, their response is described in verse 20. When he had said this, peace be with you, he showed them both his hands and his side. He's proving to them that that, that he's Jesus. He's showing them the proof. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The rejoicing comes after the proof because the disciples are all doubting. But when their doubt is is turned to conviction that Jesus is alive, what is their response? It's joy. The disciples were, were, were sad because the man that they loved, Jesus, was dead. They were mourning for the fact that they had buried him for how he suffered a criminal's death. Probably frustrated. Everything that they've pursued for the past several years is seemingly gone. They're wondering, what was this all for? They're probably feeling lost as their sole purpose for living has just been undermined as Jesus dies. But when they see Jesus, at Jesus' appearance, their sadness turns to happiness. Their their mourning turns to celebration. Their, their, their frustration turns to gladness and, and rejoicing. Their, their sense of loss is filled with a renewed sense of purpose and hope and, and mission. Because that's the effect that Jesus appearing to them had on them. It brought pure joy. 
It brought celebration. It brought happiness. The resurrection brings joy to the doubtful. Just thinking through this as I was studying this reaction that the disciples had, the emotional response that the resurrection causes. I don't know that there's any more joyful topic to meditate on than that we serve a risen Savior, that Christ defeated death. Thinking through just songs that we sing and the emotions that accompany different topics. You know, when we're, when we're singing about the death of Christ, dying in our place, that, that often brings on emotions of sadness, of, of, of humility that He would die for me. There's, there's just this overwhelming nature to that truth. But when we sing of Christ resurrected from the grave, when we sing of Christ who is dead but is now alive, that that is accompanied, I hope it is with you, like that is accompanied with emotions of joy and happiness and and elation and celebration. That, That he was dead and that he died for a heavy reason, but he's not still dead, he's alive. I hope that that truth brings joy to you. That you can rejoice in a a risen Savior because that's what the resurrection brings. It brings joy. When the disciples saw Jesus, who was dead, now alive, who was in the grave, now in their presence, rejoicing was their natural reaction. Well, the text then takes a, a really interesting turn in verse 21 as the, the second effect of Jesus' appearance to his disciples shows up. The second effect, and this one's going to be a little bit fun, is that it prepares the disciples for a new era. Jesus' appearance to his disciples prepares his disciples for a new era. We're told some really interesting things in verses 21 through 23. Jesus says the same thing to them again. Peace be with you. And then he starts to get into some really important terminology in the New Testament for how we understand even the development of the church in the book of Acts. Jesus says to his disciples, As the Father sent me, I also send you. Then Jesus does something really interesting in verse 22. He walks up to them and he breathes on them. He, he, I don't know what that looks like. He walks up to them and he breathes on them. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Then it gets weirder. In verse 23, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any or don't forgive them, th- their sins... Remain upon them. Their sins are retained. What is Jesus talking about? And why on earth is he talking about it now? <laughs> like this glorious scene and Jesus goes from rejoicing to breathing on people, which is not typical rejoicing type stuff, right? If it were, that'd be weird. 
Like, hey, congratulations, you won the game. <sighs> right? Like, that's, that's not rejoice, and it's not. Like, Jesus is very focused on something here. Where I lean on, on the meaning of these verses is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's going to be happening in this new stage that really kicks off when Jesus is, is risen from the dead. We know based on, on, on other scripture that the time is coming when the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, a scene called Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is going to descend and he's going to be with believers in a new way. That hasn't happened yet. And yet Jesus walks up to him and breathes on him and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He, he, he says to them, I'm sending you. There's definitely a sense in these verses where what he's telling them is happening isn't actually happening quite yet, but it's coming. For example, Jesus says, just like the Father sent me, I'm sending you. But the disciples after this scene don't actually go anywhere. You know where they go? They go fishing. And that's not where Jesus is sending them. When Jesus says, I'm sending you, he's telling them, you're going to go as apostles and you're going to establish my church and you're going to build it up. I'm going to build it up on you. But the disciples don't go and do that after this scene because Jesus is talking to them about some things that are going to be taking place in the coming days. Even the receiving of the Spirit, them being sent, that's going to happen over the course of the next 40 to 50 days of Jesus' time on earth. Jesus says, the sins that you forgive will be forgiven others. The sins that you retain will be retained on others. What he's talking about, there's, there's terminology there that Jesus has said a lot in the Gospels. And it has to do with the authority that the apostles are going to have in the establishing of the church. It's actually like church discipline type of terminology. That, that as the disciples go, and with, with Scripture as their, as their ruler with Scripture as their guide, when they look to someone and, and based on what Scripture teaches, can say to them that you're forgiven of their sins, they're, they're accurate, they're true, they're right. If they're using Scripture as their guide, what they say in regards to the forgiveness of sins or, or the lack of it, it's accurate. It's reflected in heaven. So if the apostles who are, who are establishing the church... If with scripture, they look to someone and say, your sins are forgiven, they're right. They're right. Now, the apostles aren't actually the ones who forgive sin. Jesus forgives sin. But in the same way, with scripture as our guide, if we can walk up to someone with scripture as our guide and say to them, you're forgiven of your sin based on what the word of God says... The word of God is, is never wrong. It never lies. And so, and so it reigns true. That's all coming in this new era when the Holy Spirit descends and the church begins. Jesus in this scene immediately is preparing his disciples for that new era. So his appearance to his disciples first brings the doubters joy second it prepares the disciples for a new era and that brings us to a third effect the third effect is that it causes the deniers to believe the ascension causes the deniers to believe 
the denier is Thomas. What the disciples have shown by their action, Thomas goes so far as to, as to say with his mouth. Remember, Thomas isn't in this scene. And so in the next verse, in verse 24, actually verse 26, we skip ahead eight days. Eight days of the disciples saying, Thomas, we all, the the 11 of us, and Mary, and others, we've seen him, he's alive. And Thomas says, no, I won't believe it. I won't believe it unless I get to see him for myself, unless I can feel his hands and feel his side. I will not believe. Those are heavy, heavy words from Thomas. For eight days, he holds that position. For eight days, Jesus doesn't appear again, not to his disciples, not to anyone. And the disciples are trying to persuade Thomas, but he won't believe. So eight days later, the disciples, this time Thomas with them, are all together. The doors are shut again. They're still afraid of the Jews. The doors are shut. They're in secrecy, and Jesus appears again. Jesus appears again. And he appears to talk to Thomas. All we're told in this scene is that Jesus looks to Thomas and he says, Thomas, reach here with your finger. Verse 27, see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, do not be unbelieving. Be believing. Be a believer. Jesus calls Thomas to himself. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can see it with my own eyes. So Jesus calls him to him. Look at Thomas' response, verse 28. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Thomas humbles himself. Thomas acknowledges the entire purpose that John has been writing this gospel, that you would believe that Jesus is God. Thomas, when he sees the appearance of the Lord in this room, he says, you are the Lord, you are the God, but not only that, you are my Lord and you are my God. And so Thomas humbles himself before Jesus and he believes, but Jesus is disappointed in Thomas. Jesus says in verse 29, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Thomas had an incredible lack of faith. In fact, most of the disciples did. Thomas was a slave to his logic. He was a prisoner of his own reasoning. His own reasoning and logic told him that dead people don't rise. It doesn't matter how many people say dead people rise. Dead people don't rise. So Thomas wouldn't believe. Because it didn't make sense to him. Thomas had to see it. Thomas had to feel it. Thomas had to experience it. Then he believes. 
Jesus is frustrated with them. He's disappointed in his lack of faith. We have an expression that we use a lot. Seeing is believing. That's, that's not true. That's a lie. Faith does not come from sight. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us faith, belief, believing is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith requires that you don't see it. Thomas wants everything to fall under his logical reasoning, but but Jesus is disappointed in him. Jesus is disappointed that Thomas won't believe based on the word of another. Jesus is disappointed that Thomas won't believe just because of what Jesus said was going to come. Thomas was a slave to his logic. He was a prisoner of his reasoning. And I would suspect that some of you here are as well. That some of you here would be considered in the same light as Thomas is in this passage. Wanting the Christianity thing to make logical sense to you. To just click. But but what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is that the message of the cross, the death, the resurrection, all of it is foolishness to everyone who's perishing. It doesn't make sense. And Thomas wants it to make sense. He's not willing to go out of his logical arena that he's placed himself in. But Paul writes, it's foolishness if you're perishing. But if you're saved, if you're being saved, the cross is the power of God. That God has said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Thomas's logic is, is smashed. The, the doors are blown off of his logic. Because seeing is not believing. Believing faith is stepping out in what you cannot see. And that is what you're called to do. That's what you're called to do. To believe. Based on what we've seen in this gospel. To believe. To have faith. Even if it doesn't make sense to you. It won't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Dead people don't rise. Guilty people don't go free. But at the cross, that's what happens. So, let's make an effort. One, if you are a believer, to rejoice in our risen Savior. There is a response to a resurrected Christ, and that is a response of joyfulness. But if that's not you, 
Next week, we're going to just look at the purpose of the writing of this whole gospel. And it's that you would believe. That you would have faith. That you wouldn't be like Thomas. Who had to see before he would believe. The day is coming when we will all see. But for some, that will be too late. So I beg you to place your faith, your belief in Jesus.